and there was a fairly large path of destruction that these individuals had created. Maybe half had been homicides, and in a couple of cases, they were actually innocent people that were hit in the crossfire or were accidentally hit when somebody was targeted and the shot missed. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement podcast brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, GoLawEnforcement.com has the largest listing of law enforcement job openings. To help you get that law enforcement job, we put together a special guide for you. Seven inside tips to get a law enforcement job fast. You can get the guide for free just by going to JobTipsNow.com. That's JobTipsNow.com. Crime labs play an integral role in criminal investigations. In this episode of the Go Law Enforcement Podcast, San Francisco Police Department Forensic Services Director John Sanchez discusses the various specialties within a crime lab and how the work of the San Francisco Police Department Crime Lab was able to tie together a series of shootings and homicides which were impacting innocent victims in the city of San Francisco. Forensic Services Director John Sanchez, thank you for being on the Go Law Enforcement Podcast. Thank you for having me, Joe. You started your career as a forensic scientist with the Illinois State Police Forensic Lab. What did that job entail? I began, uh, correctly, my job uh, with the Illinois State Police as a forensic scientist trainee. And that job was for a specific discipline in forensic sciences uh, of firearms identification or firearms and tool marks identification. It was really to uh, enter into an apprenticeship-type program where they would teach me the basics of forensic science and of the um, application of that science to a specific discipline, which is fireman tool mark identification. I spent about 12 months in that training, which got me to the point where I could actually begin to work casework, handling guns and fired ammunition components for comparison purposes. And that's where my career started. And then your next step was as a uh, criminalist, too, with San Mateo County Sheriff's Forensic Lab. Were your duties expanded with that job? Uh, actually, yes, they were. I was hired to do firearms and tool mark work for the County Sheriff's Laboratory, but they were a slightly different lab in philosophy where they also practiced some of the older general criminalistics pieces. So I was performing narcotics analysis on solid dosage drugs that were collected as evidence. I also performed crime scene investigations where I would go out to crime scenes, uh, major crime scenes, homicides or other uh, shootings, officer-involved shootings. And I would document the scene, uh, collect evidence, and then if asked to do a shooting reconstruction or trajectory analysis uh, on those scenes, if that were deemed to be valuable. And then I also was asked to do some forensic alcohol analysis and some footwear tire track impression evidence analysis. So it was kind of an all-services all, all services experience. 
And you were the forensic services director at the San Francisco Police Department. What does that job entail? So as director of forensic services, I am first and foremost kind of the primary technical advisor for a division of forensic services. And our division consists of three primary components, one being the crime laboratory that does much of the analysis, which I just referred to in, in my uh, kind of my career growth. In addition to that, there is the crime scene investigations unit that is specific to just going out and responding to crime scenes and collecting evidence, processing for fingerprints, and then doing fingerprint comparisons. So I also, as director, oversee that. And the third function uh, in our division is what we call the APHIS, the Automated Fingerprint Identification Section, and the Identification Bureau, which really provides a lot of service to um, other areas in the city of San Francisco, as well as to the police department, in trying to identify individuals off of fingerprints. There appears to be a lot of specialties within these. Can you kind of talk about some of those specialties and maybe give an example of how they'd be used in a criminal case? Sure. Uh, Primarily with regard to the crime laboratory or forensic laboratory here, and I'm speaking to San Francisco, every other jurisdiction is slightly different in how they do things, but we have the DNA and forensic biology unit here, which is doing what everybody sees on television nowadays is that DNA work, whether it's going all the way back to the OJ case and the early days of that technology being implemented in criminal investigations for murders, for sexual assaults, but also for things like property crimes where serial burglars or robberies where an individual uh, perpetrator may cut themselves and be bleeding and not even realize it because of broken glass or something, this DNA unit would be receiving that evidence and processing it in order to uh, attempt to develop a genetic profile that might be loaded into the combined DNA indexing system, which is called CODIS oftentimes. And that is really to help investigation look for these serial offenders, people typically who are committing these crimes. They're not doing it once and done. They're, They're repeat offenders. And somewhere along the line, their DNA has probably been collected and we can do a comparison. So that's really the focus of that DNA unit. We also have the Fireman Tool March unit, which is probably, you know, in, in many labs, the, the second largest unit, uh, handling all the gun-related crimes in the city or particular jurisdiction, whether it's guns taking it off the street, test-firing those guns to see if they were used in other crimes, or if it's looking at ammunition uh, as fired evidence from scenes, drive-by shootings where casings or bullets may be recovered, that unit is doing all of that comparison work, that forensic uh, microscopic work. We also have uh, a trace unit that deals primarily with gunshot residue analysis, uh, which in investigations really helps an investigator to gain information up, up front. It's really not used down the road in trial to prove that somebody did or didn't do something. It really helps investigators on the front end to be able to say, hey, this person is positive for gunshot residue versus this person is negative. So they are more or less likely to have been in the vicinity uh, by interviewing that person based on having that data. In addition, in that unit, we're also doing uh, tire track and footwear impression comparisons. Not done as often today out there because it's hard to get a good tire track impression 
off of the ground. It has to be off of certain soil types or certain residues that might be behind if the car traveled slowly over. But they can be useful, again, in things like burglaries or bank robberies. Sometimes those things come into play. Uh, likewise, for, for shoe impression evidence. I referenced earlier the O.J. Simpson case, and that was one of the biggest things they had was uh, some bloody, uh, paint, uh, what they call patent impressions of the shoe print in blood. That can be very valuable to an investigator, particularly if they have a suspect and they recover shoes from that suspect that they might have been wearing the night of uh, the event. They can do a comparison of the bloody print to the shoe. Uh, we also have a controlled substances unit, which is again, looking at any sort of solid dosage drugs or narcotics that are being taken off the street, off of suspects. They come through to be identified here in the laboratory as to what is that um, substance. And that is reported out for, um, oftentimes for um, court purposes, uh, to determine what the amount and what the purity of a particular drug was that a suspect had in their possession. On the CSI side of our house, we're doing things like, as I said, latent fingerprint comparisons and processing. And that's one of the oldest arts in forensic science is the comparison of fingerprints, the development of those prints from crime scenes. And I think it's pretty obvious what the benefits to um, an investigation that, that those prints can be. Additionally, um, in general, crime scene reconstruction could subspecialize in the area of trajectory analysis or shooting reconstructions, and we do both of those here in our CSI unit where a few individuals are specialized in that area, and they could go back and attempt to reconstruct a shooting based off of marks they believe to be uh, consistent with the passage of a bullet projectile, and they can do the necessary math in order to kind of reconstruct what might have happened. Very similar to blood spatter uh, interpretation, which we also have some individuals that do that, and that can be very useful in an investigation, oftentimes trying to determine how a particular, and it's usually in the case of bludgeoning where you might get blood cast off, how that uh, event took place, where the two subjects were moving throughout a room, and how the blows were kind of administered. That information can be very useful to investigators. And that's essentially, you know, our main functions here is at the forensic services. So with DNA, when you do have a sample, how common is it to actually have a match? Um, you know, that's kind of hard to say how common it is. DNA is sort of mischaracterized out there as being this, this kind of cure-all for things. It's extremely helpful and it is only getting better as the technology evolves, but Oftentimes, DNA or genetic information is available from some evidence item, but because the sensitivity of the testing is so great, there may actually be multiple DNA genetic profiles present from individuals who have been in contact with a particular evidence item, take a glass or you know even even a baseball bat. Multiple people have handled those and were swabbing that we could actually get multiple profiles off of there. And then when you, what we call a mixture of DNA, have that present, it becomes difficult to try and determine who's responsible for what profile. So we oftentimes are able to get genetic material or a profile off of evidence, being able to say it's more likely person A 
towards more likely person B, we're probably you know in the maybe forty percent, fifty percent of the cases get you down to maybe a one or a two person mixture where you can say more. But you know that that's very anecdotal. That's not a, a you know a hard and fast statistic. I mentioned earlier the the CODIS database, and that's where we're uploading these profiles in. When profiles are uploaded to that, when they're generated and they can be put into that system, there is more, you know about a twenty to twenty five percent hit rate where you're finding hey, you know almost almost a third of the time it's resulting in a match to somebody. But that's a little bit different than the question that you asked me specifically was how, you know, how often in general are we getting that? I'd say probably 40 to 50 percent of the time we, we get a profile that we might be able to do something with. Can you talk about a case that illustrates how the forensic services was utilized in that case? Several years back, the crime laboratory, in the course of normal operation, uh, in the, in the unit, firearms identification unit, was responding to calls for service from investigations to look at a host of shootings from homicides all the way through drive-by shootings. Um, and just individually, not as a connection, but just these requests were coming in one at a time to analyze evidence in each one of these at, what at the time seemed to be separate incidents. And what type of analysis were you doing with those shootings? So this was primarily uh, forensic firearms, microscopic comparisons where either firearms were recovered because they were believed to have been used in a particular shooting. And so we were comparing test fires from that submitted firearm to casings or bullets collected out of other scenes that this gun may have been used at. The other side of this work was cases where you had shooting, uh, a shooting, but cartridge casings and or bullet and bullet fragments were recovered, no guns, and they were curious as to what type of gun might have fired these casings and bullets, as well as how many firearms might have been involved. Were they all from one gun or were they multiple guns? And at the time, it wasn't clear if these were all related? That's correct. We had no indication. Investigators weren't even indicating that they suspected things might be related. They just wanted us to really get a handle on what was an uptick in shootings in a few areas of the city. And they just wanted us to try and process this evidence and give them answers, whatever those answers were. So what happened next? So over the course of actually a few years of doing this, the laboratory began to link many of these shootings either to back to firearms that were recovered or just shootings where no guns were recovered, but they were related. And it was providing all this information back to investigations. What we weren't aware of is that investigations was now taking that information and saying, you know, looking at the pattern and then based on suspects around all these different shootings, they were starting to connect people with these shootings and seeing a pattern develop that we were completely unaware of. What was the specific elements from these different events that you were able to connect together? Primarily the fact that a number of guns in the city were being used by a finite number of people. These guns were being transferred, being used one place and being transferred over to somewhere else in the city. And then uh, on top of that, these K-9 
cases where no guns were recovered, we were again starting to see that, hey, this cluster of shootings here is actually the same caliber of gun, the same type of gun being used, and in fact, the same two guns actually are being used in these uh, incidents. And so we started noticing that and thinking, okay, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for if this evidence comes in in the future, they might be related over here. And how did the investigation progress? And so it was probably a good two and a half, three years into the laboratory doing all this work that the federal U.S. attorney's office had reached out to the lab and said, we understand that the laboratory has made a lot of these shootings connected. And they were looking to go forward with uh, a RICO case against several known gang members in the city. And they would like us to do some additional comparisons where none had been done to try and see if there was any more connection from what we already provided. RICO is a, a federal law that was designed to combat organized crime in the U.S. It stands for the Racketeer Influence and Corruption Organizations Act. And so the feds would use this in order to say, hey, a group of individuals is engaging in essentially organized crime, and they can you know, have much stiffer sentences and be more aggressive in going after some very violent people, in this case, who were really creating a lot of havoc out in the streets of San Francisco. So what was the next step in the case? After being asked by the U.S. Attorney's Office to tie up a few loose ends for them and kind of present a package, we were then asked to testify in federal court to, to show that, to demonstrate that the science which we used in the laboratory was valid and sound and was able to actually corroborate what the SFPD and ultimately federal investigators determined were other connections of evidence that these people had to these shootings. We now had the physical evidence besides the, you know, the money and the uh, social networking to show where these individuals were and witness statements and these other things. We now had physical scientific evidence to also support that to say, yes, the guns that were caught on these individuals were in fact used in all these different areas. And there was a fairly large path that these individuals had created. And so testifying in court was the kind of the final the culmination of this exercise, and it ultimately resulted in a significant number of either uh, plea deals or uh, ultimate convictions for individuals. These shootings, had there been homicides with these shootings? Absolutely, yes. There was probably about maybe half had been homicides, and, and in a couple of cases they were actually innocent people that were, you know, hit in the crossfire or were accidentally hit when somebody was targeted and the shot missed. Was it a gang-related? Yes, these were gang. There was two different uh, gangs that were involved in this. You had mentioned some of the different specialties, DNA, gunshot, trace elements. Can you talk about what the career paths are for people who go into those specialties, how they get into them? Much like myself, most of the individuals who desire to go into these fields really should go and, and get a four-year degree in, depending on if you're really leaning towards DNA versus, say, fingerprints or blood fat or something like that, um, get a four-year degree in one of the sciences, you know, biology, chemistry. Um, that's very helpful. 
people can also go the path of a, a forensic science degree, which, you know, that helps as well. But getting your four degrees is probably the most important thing with some emphasis on whatever you think your area of interest might be. If you think it's DNA, then you really should be focusing on biochemistry and molecular biology. And if you think it's drug analysis, then certainly chemistry is a better route to be focused on. You know, one doesn't preclude you from the other. And then once you're out of that four-year program, a lot of people now are going on and getting master's degrees. So the competition for these jobs is just increasing. So, again, it's not required, but it would help an individual to, uh, to get their foot in the door. The other thing to really, for somebody interested in it, if they have the degree, is to go out and find a laboratory that might be willing to take them on as an intern. We do a, we have an internship program here in San Francisco. We get a lot of interns, probably six or so a year uh, that come through, and that really helps out somebody trying to make that career choice. And you're also president of a California association. What is that association? So the California Association of Crime Lab Directors is just as that. It's, a, it's our association in the state of California where all of the public police agencies that have a laboratory, California is a very large state, obviously, and we have a lot of labs at the state, at the, at the county, and at the local level in addition to some federal laboratories. So given that size and given the number of labs and jurisdictions being represented, the CACLD, the Association of Lab Directors, really is there to help coordinate consistency in in the state to get awareness on what's happening in Sacramento for legislative items that could impact the public laboratories whether it's, you know, fee changes, whether it's state requirements to address sexual assault evidence backlogs. That, that group, that association is really there in order to be uh, almost a, a, a force to ensure that the state's laboratories are consistent and that they are being equally represented up in Sacramento to know that anything that gets changed with the laws, we're able to respond and handle at the scientific level. For somebody who's interested in a career, either in a crime lab, working in crime scene investigation, what career advice would you have for them? I think the, the biggest thing is go get your degree in either in science or in forensic science, and then really get out there and get internships. Do it if you really want to be in this field. It's highly competitive. What's going to separate you from everybody else is the fact that you've been willing to, you know, kind of give up your time and sacrifice and go get dirty inside a laboratory. You're not going to be doing glamorous work. Uh, It's really grunt work. But in the end, it gives you a lot of idea of how a laboratory works. And as managers, that's what we're really looking for is people who are able to respond to adversity, but also people who are very honest, people who have a high ethical standard. And, you know, don't have a problem being questioned. You can't get defensive in this line of work. You have to accept the cross-examination that is rightfully going to come at you for the work that you do. And if you're not prepared for that, you're not going to be successful. If you get defensive, that's not that's going to work against you. So I think the internships after your college degree are probably the biggest thing to try and seek out. And that's tough, too. It's challenging. Forensic Services Director John Sanchez. Thank you for being on the Go Law Enforcement Podcast. Well, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. 
If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, check out the largest listing of law enforcement jobs on golawenforcement.com. The requirements to be a police officer are different for every state. To find out if you meet the requirements to be a police officer in your state, take a short three-question quiz by going to golawenforcement.com forward slash quiz. That's golawenforcement.com forward slash quiz. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.